Hello, this is Leslie Gartha Tenzer, and this is Law to Fact. Today I'm speaking with Dean Emily Waldman about the Equal Protection Clause. Dean Waldman is a professor and assistant dean for external affairs at the Elizabeth Hubbs School of Law at Pace University, where she teaches constitutional law, civil procedure, employment law, and law and education. Today we're speaking about the Equal Protection Clause. Dean Waldman had so much to say about this that we actually broke this into two parts, and today is part one of our two-part series. In this episode, Dean Waldman discusses with specificity and in the clearest of ways how to look for and analyze an equal protection type question on a con law exam. I totally get it, and I know you will too. Part two of this series will follow next Tuesday. This episode is a viewer request. Have a topic you'd like us to address? Email us at lawtofact.gmail.com or tweet us at lawtofact. And if you like us, please rate us on any of the platforms on which you listen to our podcast. Okay, here's Dean Walbin on the Equal Protection Clause. Thank you for listening to a viewer concern about um, con law, and particularly we're talking about equal protection. Mm -hmm. So I have not taken con law in many, many years. Um, I taught it once, but that was like many, many years ago. So I guess could you set up like the framework of equal protection? Sure. So with equal protection, you're always focused on the fact that the government is drawing some sort of classification. Right? It has a law or a policy that's treating some people differently from other people. And you want to start by looking at, well, okay, on what basis is the government classifying? Right. So is the government drawing a classification in the most extreme example based on someone's race or national origin? Mm-hmm. Or is the government drawing a classification based on sex slash gender? Or is the government drawing a classification based on age? There are all sorts of laws that have to do with age, and you can do different things um, at different ages. Is the government drawing a classification based on disabilities? the government drawing a classification based on where you live? There are tons of classifications that the government can draw. All right, so I'm going to stop you because I'm going to take a step back, which I always like to do. So basically, what happens is there is a law that either the state or the federal government or a locality. Or a locality. Town, oh, right, 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 right. A school district. Or an ordinance or right, Whatever. any kind of law, yeah, right? any law. Okay. It has to come from the government because okay. it's only the government right. that the Constitution limits, right? So if it's like a private school, a private employer, someone in your family, right. you can't sue them for violating the Constitution. It has to be government at some level that's drawing a distinction. All right. And so then what equal protection is looking at is, is that distinction okay? Does it violate the Constitution or not? So a law is out there and the law says you have to be 18 years um, or older to vote. Right. And a 16-year-old is upset with that law. Exactly. And so then the 16-year-old, the person who was not covered, and that's only be like technically a person who is covered could still sue for equal protection, right? But why would they? Because the law benefits them. Yeah, and typically to have standing, you have to show that you're being injured in some way Got by it. the law. Okay. All right, so we have a law. The law discriminates? Yeah, or the law... And it doesn't even have to be discriminating in the sense that we think of, like, oh, discrimination, like something on the basis of race, right? Suppose it's a village. They're like, we have this park, and you need to live in the village to come to the park. You need to have the village park pass, right? So they're distinguishing between who resides in the village and who doesn't. Perfect. Right? There are Mm -hmm. tons of distinctions that the government makes all the time. Got it. And the way that equal protection doctrine works is it says you look at that classification and certain types of classifications trigger heightened review by a court. Okay. Most classifications 
don't. So with most classifications, like a village saying you can only come into the park if you live in the village or things with respect to age, you can only vote if you're 18, they will just trigger what's known as rational basis review okay. by a court. Okay. Um, and so a court there will just look at, is this classification, is this distinction that the government is drawing rationally related to some sort of legitimate governmental purpose. It's a really deferential standard. Got it. So going back to our park hypothetical, let's mm-hmm. say that it is a town of a th- of 5,000 people and the park is teeny tiny. And they say that only residents who are paying taxes exactly. to the town can use the park between 9 and 1. Yeah. Someone who doesn't live in town will sue. And the court will review it, and the standard that they will review it by is rational basis. And the reason they'll review it by rational basis is because it doesn't trigger any of these kind of suspect Yeah, it's classes. not one of the, and we're going to talk about those in a minute. There right. are certain distinctions where if the government is distinguishing on that basis, right. then the court's going to get much more concerned, and they're going to apply a much tougher level of review to that. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Okay, so but if there's... If, there, if it isn't one of those special suspect protected classifications, a court's just going to apply rational basis review, right. and almost every classification passes rational basis review. Occasionally, there can be something that will fail. We can talk about that later. But it's super deferential. Yeah, okay. so like a village doing that, they would have no problem passing rational basis review. Got they it. could say, the park is small. You know, we want people who are supporting it through tax dollars to be able to use it. It doesn't even have to be from 9 to 1. They could say, you're never allowed in this park if you don't live in the town. A court's not going to worry about any of that stuff. It's just going to be rational basis review as long as there's some legitimate purpose. And I think another important thing to note about rational basis review is that that standard already sounds pretty deferential, Mm -hmm. right? It just has to be rationally related to a legitimate governmental purpose. The Mm -hmm. Supreme Court has further interpreted the pieces of that to be even more deferential. Okay. So it has said rationally related to a legitimate governmental purpose, it doesn't even have to be the real purpose. As long as there's some legitimate purpose out there, that's good enough. The government could come up with that at trial and say, okay, here's a legitimate purpose. Court would say, fine, we're not going to worry about what the real one was. As long as there's some legitimate purpose, that's good enough. And similarly, with respect to rationally related, the court has said, it doesn't have to be that tight a fit. Right? The plaintiff can say, well, wait a minute. Like, you didn't really need to do it that way. You could have accomplished it a different way. Court doesn't care. As long as it's rationally related, that's good enough. Perfect. So it's a really deferential standard. Right. And that's good because we should give deference to the lawmakers who were voted by the citizens, <laughs> right? Well, I think some people think it's good. Okay. And some people think <laughs> right. that's fishy. And okay. they think, no, what do you mean? The court should look at okay. whether that was the real purpose. Okay. The government's just coming up with some... You know, justification after the fact, that shouldn't be good enough. You should try to figure out what was the real reason at the time. So I don't know if everyone thinks that's good, but I think some people do. That's my political bench. Yeah, well, yeah. And I mean, that's what the majority of the Supreme Court has said time and time again. Look, we're not going to review everything the government does. As long as there's a rational reason that we can come up with. They've actually said it's on the, the burden is on the challenger mm-hmm. to, like, negate every possible rational basis there could be. Wow. Every possible okay. justification. That, that, oh, okay. So it's really deferential. That is very deferential. And like I said, some people think that's good. Some people think it's not. But, but whatever. Is. That's yeah. what the law is. Okay. That's so, and that's what you get tested on. That's what it yes. is. Yes. Okay. Rational basis review. Okay. So let me just say one more thing about rational basis okay. review, which is occasionally... 
there are a couple cases um, where the Supreme Court, and lower courts sometimes do this too, they apply rational basis review a little more strictly. They don't say, we're doing this, we're applying a different version of rational basis. They just kind of do it. Okay. And sometimes people refer to those cases as the rational basis with bite cases. Okay. Or rational basis with teeth. Because there are a couple Supreme Court cases where the court said it was doing rational basis review. Mm-hmm. But it started looking more closely at what was going on. Um, so there are the famous cases like that, um, there's a case called Romer versus Evans, oh, which yeah. I'm sure people are reading in con law, where this is back in the mid-90s. Um, there was an amendment in Colorado, a constitutional amendment, where they were, to make a long story short, they were sort of wiping out any protections that cities in Colorado or counties in Colorado were passing to prohibit discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. Mm -hmm. So the voters voted in favor of this amendment that said, like, all of those are being eliminated. And the Supreme Court, in a 5-4 decision, actually struck that down. And in doing that, they said, we're doing rational basis review. But they looked much more closely at it. And they said, it seems like what's really going on here is animus and prejudice Mm -hmm. toward um, gay people, right, Right. on the basis of sexual orientation. And so the takeaway from that case, and there are a couple others like it, is when a court gets worried that what's really going on is stemming from some sort of net animus toward a particular group, then the court will not be so deferential anymore and say, well, whatever you can come up with after the fact is good okay. enough. Okay. If, they ha- if they have a clue that there's really some sort of troubling animus going on, right. like with our park example, suppose for some reason there were really an indication that all of a sudden they're closing this park because of prejudice against a particular right. group, then a court starts looking more closely. Got In it. fact, as we'll talk about later, if there were really a proof of intent, maybe they would even officially apply a higher level of scrutiny. Okay, Even if they don't, Occasionally, they'll just apply rational basis review more strictly. All right, but for the most part, they don't. And it's not so. So when you when you want to do this rational basis with teeth, kind of standard, mm-hmm. it's not like you can say there's a particular identifiable type of legislation. It's more that if it looks like the um, legislature or whoever is proposing this legislation or, or ordinance or rule is kind of secretly targeting someone, yeah, and that's kind of apparent. Yes. Right. All right. So that's something just to consider. Okay, yeah. Got it. Right. Okay. So yeah, but there's some sort of real animus going on. Like okay. I said in Romer, um, so the Supreme Court had not said and still has never said that sexual orientation is a protected characteristic, a suspect classification that gets higher review, which we'll talk, we'll talk about in a minute. Even so, they said this doesn't even, we're applying rational basis, but this doesn't pass. It just seems like there's discriminatory animus. Okay. Here. Got it. Okay, so that's rational basis review. And again, in your life, you'll see like a million times a day government is drawing distinctions. I mean, government, think about it. Like, there are speeding restrictions. On this road, you can only go 30 miles an hour. On that one, you can go 55, right? There are classifications constantly. Every law, in a sense, is almost like a classification. Mm -hmm. So, default is rational basis review. Then there are a few classifications, a few characteristics that the Supreme Court has singled out and has said, if the government's drawing a classification on that basis, we're not doing rational basis review. Okay. So the sort of paradigm example of that is, is the government drawing a classification based on race or national origin? Okay. Right? What country you originally, um, your ancestors originally immigrated from? Not citizenship, but just race and national origin. Got it. If the government passes a law or there's a regulation that right on its face 
is differentiating and classifying based on race or national origin, a court is going to apply what's called strict scrutiny. To right. That. Regardless right. of which side they're favoring. Absolutely. Regardless of which side. Right. So if a school said you can only come to the school if you're white, mm-hmm. which obviously doesn't happen anymore, <laughs> but before Brown versus Board of Education, right. that was what happened. You had segregated schools. If they right. say you can only come because you're white, strict scrutiny. And what we mean by strict scrutiny is a court will look at, is this classification necessary or they'll sometimes call it, is it narrowly tailored mm-hmm. to achieve a compelling governmental purpose? Right. right. So that's much more searching than rational basis. Rational basis just said, is it rationally related to a legitimate purpose? Now right. we're saying, is it necessary for a compelling purpose? Right. And so just like you, this just like strict scrutiny would, would be applied to a school that will only allow, say, white people in. Same thing if it only allowed African-Americans. Right. Or, or Asian-Americans. Or, you know, that's affirmative action, right? Exactly. If we're going to allow, you know, you have to take a certain number of students or you have to look at these people um, in a more favorable... Yeah, anything that... Ex- I don't want to say these people like... Yeah. You have to look at a certain race or group in a favorable light. Yeah, suppose a public university said, you know, we are setting aside X number of spots in our class for people of this race, we're setting aside X number for that race, X number for that race, we are explicitly classifying based on race. Anything like that will trigger strict scrutiny. Now, you may be wondering, well, okay, how can there ever be affirmative action then? The answer is, even though strict scrutiny is a really tough standard, occasionally things can pass strict scrutiny, right? So a school saying, we want to be an all-white school, no minorities can come, that would clearly fail strict right. scrutiny. It would be impossible for <laughs> right. the government to say, that is, you know, and necessary right. for compelling interest. What's the compelling interest? There is not. Right, right. There's no compelling interest yeah. in having a single-race school. Yes. In our, in our society. Right. Um, there's no separate but equal and all of that. Right, That's all been right. held unconstitutional, right. right? So the sort of what we think of, I think, as the bad discrimination, that always fails strict scrutiny. Got it. The interesting question with things like affirmative action is what types of affirmative action programs can pass strict scrutiny? Yes. Um, and so there, there's a whole little separate line of cases where the Supreme Court has said, at least with universities, the educational benefits of diversity can be a compelling interest, right? Right. So that can pass that leg of strict scrutiny. And then the action usually focuses on is whatever the affirmative action program is narrowly tailored right. to achieve that. And that's cases like Grutter versus Bollinger and Gratz versus Bollinger mm-hmm. and Fisher versus the University of Texas, where the Supreme Court will really like dig into the plan and say, well, is it really necessary to do it this way? And they'll look at, you know, has the university considered other alternatives and are they, the court has said it's very important that they not sort of be too absolute in how they're doing it. So race and diversity can be one factor in determining who gets in, but it can't be the sole factor. You can't set aside a certain number of classes. It has to be part of an individualized process. So some plans can actually pass muster as being narrowly tailored right. and others don't. Right. Right, right. And so that's what I was going to say. So, And this is something you know about. Yeah, I've written about, about this a lot, it. actually. But the point is that um, you are really asking yourself two questions. First, is there a compelling governmental interest? And if yeah. there is, is this narrowly tailored to meet this interest? And it doesn't have to be the most narrowly tailored. It just has to be narrowly tailored. It has to be pretty narrowly tailored. Right. I mean, there's a little bit of you know variation in the cases on exactly how strict they are. 
but it needs to be a pretty close fit. Right. No, I agree with that. But I, but I guess what I was saying was that it doesn't have to be the narrowest of tailoring. Like, I think, that, do you disagree? I mean, you could disagree. You know, it's funny. It's like, because the court ready. sort of goes back and forth between saying necessary and narrowly tailored. And I agree right. with you that narrowly tailored sounds like a little less strict than necessary. I think it depends sometimes on who's writing the decision, right. whether they make it seem super strict or just strict. You know, and I don't, I just want, I don't want, I don't mean necessary. What I mean is that there are no other alternatives. I guess that's what I'm trying to say, is that narrowly tailored has to be narrowly tailored and has to yeah. be very narrowly tailored, yeah. but it doesn't mean that it's the only alternative I that agree that's with that, what I'm trying to but say. But I think you can disagree in then. the context of affirmative action, for example, if the court thought there was an alternative that would work just as well that where, was even more they, were, where they weren't taking race into account, then maybe the okay. program would fail. They have to be convinced, I think, that the school really needs to do this and they're not going to accomplish the educational benefits of diversity to the same extent otherwise. If right. they thought there was another way that didn't take race into account at all and would yield exactly the same level of diversity in the class... I think maybe they would strike down the plan. But I think usually they've been convinced in the plans that they've upheld that, wow, unless you do it this way, you're not going to end up with the educational benefits of diversity to the same extent. Right. And the educational benefits of diversity are what's the compelling government. Exactly. So just to kind of bring this back to an academic level, right, right, that there's, again, and I think we said this before, but there's two prongs. There's the, it's got to be narrowly tailored to meet a compelling governmental interest, Again, I don't teach con law, but it would seem to me that it would make sense to first say, is there a compelling governmental interest? Because yep. if there's no compelling government interest, yeah. why bother seeing if it's exactly. narrowly tailored? Exactly. Uh, but if you get an affirmative action question on an exam, right. the, the Supreme Court has held that the educational benefits of diversity are a compelling interest. Right. right? So on an exam, you wouldn't want to say, well, I don't think they are a compelling <laughs> interest, right? The Supreme Court right. has said that... They are. Right. Not everybody has agreed, but the Supreme Court has said that they are. So there, if you on an exam had an affirmative action question, you would want to say in the Supreme Court in Cruder versus Bollinger and more recently in Fisher right. versus the University of Texas said that the educational benefits of diversity in a higher education setting are a compelling interest. Right. And then you would want to really analyze, well, is this particular program narrowly tailored enough and you would want to look at those cases and the factors that the supreme court talked about i.e is it is taking is the university taking race into account as part of a flexible individualized assessment as opposed to just saying well if you're this race you get this many points to get in did they consider other alternatives that were race neutral are they it's all sort of connected but are they not unduly trammeling the rights of other people, which is sort of connected with, are they looking at everyone as an individual? Are they looking at what everybody brings to this diversity question? And then it's sort of just folded into the holistic analysis, things like that. It seems that there's three things that I would need to know for this type of question. If I see something that kind of smells of equal protection, which would be a case where there's a statute. There's some government doing something that's drawing some kind of distinction, some classification. Some classification. So the first thing I have to figure out is who they're classifying against. Yeah, or like on what basis are they classifying? Is it about who lives in the town and who doesn't? Right, that's what I mean. Exactly. Right. Right. And so once we figure out on what basis they're classifying, then we have to figure out 
is this a suspect class? Yes. And what classes are suspect okay, classes? Okay, so we already talked about race and national origin. Right. If you get if you get a classification based on that, go directly to strict scrutiny. Okay. The other big one um, that probably in anyone's con law, first year con law class they're reading a lot of cases about is sex. Okay. Um, and by sex, I mean gender. Right. I want to footnote the Supreme Court so far has used sex and gender interchangeably. Okay. Right. Today there's a lot of discussion about there's biological right. sex, there's gender identity. Right. In the cases so far, a lot of which are from 20, 30 years ago, the court like interchangeably uses those okay. terms. Okay. Okay. So if there's a classification based on sex, there, there's a special level of scrutiny. So well, it's, not, it, it's not strict scrutiny on the one right. hand, and it's, it's not, not rational basis. basis on the other. It's like Goldilocks, right? It's the middle level, okay. which is known as intermediate scrutiny. Okay. And so for that, a court will look at, is this classification substantially related to an important governmental purpose, right? So it's in the middle. Rational said, rationally related to legitimate. Strict said, narrowly tailored for a compelling one. This is in the middle. Got it. Doesn't have to be compelling, but it can't just be legitimate. It has to be an important purpose. And the fit needs to be pretty close. It needs to be substantially related. Got it. Right? So if you have a government classification that is on the basis of sex or gender, it would trigger intermediate scrutiny. Okay. And the government does classify sometimes based on sex or gender, right? Like think about even public restrooms. Right. Right. right? And in all sorts of other ways. There are distinctions that are drawn. I mean, for a very long time, only men have had to register for the draft. Right. Right, that triggers intermediate scrutiny. There's actually a case going on about oh, really? that right now. Yeah, because when it passed intermediate scrutiny, at that time, women couldn't fight in combat positions. Okay. So the idea was, okay, that passes. We're not going to draft people. They can't fight in combat anyway. Now that the military has lifted That's all those so restrictions oh and said wow. women can fight in combat, now a case has been brought saying, well, now why aren't you drafting women? It right. doesn't pass intermediate scrutiny anymore right. now that they can be in combat. In that case, um, there was just a district court decision where they said, yeah, you're right, that fails intermediate scrutiny. And so there, if you have on an exam the government drawing a distinction that is based on sex, you would apply intermediate scrutiny. Now, students always want to know, what about sexual orientation? Okay, so not gender meaning men versus women. Yes. But sexual preference. Sexual, yeah. Right. Like suppose, homosexuality versus Suppose a government employer wants to say, we're not hiring gay people for this position, right? Or think about all the stuff that happened in the military in terms of don't ask, don't tell, and right. even before that, right? right. The government has drawn distinctions based on sexual orientation. Right. Um, up until very recently, right? You couldn't get married to somebody right. of the so all of those questions, right? Students always want to know about that. And the Supreme Court still hasn't ruled on sexual orientation and whether that should also trigger intermediate scrutiny. It has sort of gotten around that question with all of the cases. So for example, the qu- cases about same-sex marriage. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. The court ended up not saying whether it was it, it thought it should trigger intermediate scrutiny. They said states do have to give marriage licenses to same-sex couples, and they sort of did it under a combination of a due process, fundamental right to marry theory, and they talked about equal protection, but they never explicitly addressed whether distinctions on the basis of sexual orientation should trigger intermediate scrutiny. Right. Lower courts have started to address it. So right. I know in the Second Circuit, which is where we are, that covers New York and Connecticut and Vermont, the Second Circuit has said... That should trigger intermediate scrutiny. 
just like a straight sex discrimination right. should. It's very related that to makes that. Sense. Because in the same way, some people say sexual orientation discrimination is just a form of sex discrimination, right? right? Like, I'm a woman. Um, if there were a man, I could marry him. Um, but because I'm a woman, I can't marry that other woman. Right. So it's almost like you can reframe a lot of sexual orientation discrimination to Again, sex around. discrimination right, and right. say, fine, just right. view it as sex discrimination. But the Supreme Court hasn't addressed that. So but the you, big ones are race and national origin, getting strict scrutiny, sex, getting intermediate scrutiny. Right. And not if it's not sex or it's not race or national origin, then it gets rational, rational basis. basis. There are a couple of other little exceptions. Mm-hmm. For example, sometimes government passes laws about kids who are born outside of a marriage and there are like rules oh, about yeah. how they there was just a case about that a couple yeah. of years ago. And yeah. in some of those situations, courts have applied intermediate scrutiny to some of those rules. Another really complicated question is um, people's status if they're not citizens, and there are some rules where it's okay for government to treat that differently, like only citizens can vote, but there are some where it's not. Um, But the big ones that you tend to spend a lot of time in on con law are race and national origin getting strict scrutiny and sex slash gender getting intermediate scrutiny. And most other things just getting rational basis review. So like age classifications just get rational basis review. And so I have two, two questions, but the first question is, we know that rational basis is just does it is there an explanation, right? A yeah, is there rationally related to something right, legitimate? Right. right. Is it rationally related yeah. to something legitimate? And we know that strict scrutiny is it's gotta be narrowly tailored to meet a compelling governmental interest. Yeah. Is there a test for intermediate scrutiny? Is there like a yeah, language well, that's test? The one. Yes. So substantially what's related to an important governmental interest. Okay, so not narrowly tailored to a right. compelling governmental interest, but rather for intermediate scrutiny, it's substantially related to an important to governmental an important government. interest. Okay. And then the other thing is that you, you kind of said this in passing, but I think it's really important to point out is on an exam, because we, we're talking yeah. on a lot of fact about exams, yeah. is that a question can present itself like it sounds like it's an equal protection question, but it could just as easily, not just as easily, it could be a due process question. So yes. the most important thing I would think if I were taking a con law exam is to first figure out what provision of the Constitution is triggered? Yes and no. Okay. So, yes, that's really so we're important. asking you the expert. <laughs> but I think the really important thing is, a lot of times on a con law exam, the con law professor will come up with a question where there could be both a due process claim and an equal protection claim. And to get all the points on the exam, right. you've got to spot both of those issues. And say the plaintiffs could, and that, I mean, that certainly happened with the marriage equality cases. Right. And even way back in the 60s, right. um, in Loving versus Virginia, where Virginia banned um, interracial marriage, there was a due process claim. They said that's limiting people's fundamental right to marry. And there was an equal protection claim. Right. You're taking race into account. Right. And the court went through both of them. Right. That's what you have to do on an exam. You have to see, hey, with this law, there's a due process issue, and there's an equal protection issue, and here's my due process analysis, and here's my equal protection analysis. And, you know, so I am going to tell this now. I, in my torts class, right, I gave an exam, and it had um, battery and assault questions in it, right? And the battery came out like there was enough to talk about, but there wasn't really a battery. It wouldn't have resulted in battery. Mm-hmm. And so I had a student who didn't talk about battery. They only talked about assault because assault was, was they were going to be able to bring an assault action. They weren't going to be able to bring a battery action. 
So the point I'm making is that what you're making is that if it smells of the issue, right? Yeah. You got to talk about it, even yeah. if you're not going to win. Even if in the end your conclusion is that's probably a weak claim. Exactly. It's like on a math test where you have to show your work. You have right. to say, okay, here's the argument they can right. make. Right. Here's why I probably think here are the arguments the other way. Here's why it probably wouldn't work. Right. I always tell my students. If it's like a crazy argument that you think is irrelevant, don't read That's it. But I once say. you think there's something there, you at least want to work it through. That's the professor what I wants to see that. And with a lot of con law issues, they're both. Like I said, loving, the Supreme Court said, yeah, this violates due process and it violates equal right. protection. So it's not like there's just one claim and that means no other claim could work. Sometimes things get struck down for multiple reasons. Yeah, and in fairness to students, it's like you have to draw that fine line between throwing in everything where it looks like you have no idea what's going on and figuring it out. But I always say, like, you could say, I think it's this, but if it isn't this, then I think it's that. And I think that's really, really important. And with due process and equal protection, it's not like it has to be one or the other. It could totally be both. If there is a marriage classification... That's going to implicate the due process fundamental right to marry, right, and an equal protection issue because you're drawing the classification. That's so really they helpful. can almost be mutually reinforcing. It's not like it's either this or it's that, and it can't be both. Terrific. Anything else you want to add? Yes, but I think we're going to have to do another podcast on it, which is we didn't even get into the question of what if there is a classification where on its face it's not about race or it's not about sex, but it's having a disparate impact as to that. And I'll just leave you with an example. Um, There's been a lot of coverage in the press recently about in New York City – um, for these very elite public high schools like Stuyvesant right. and Bronx Science. Have you seen right. those articles yes, about yes, how yes. the way that you get into Stuyvesant in New York City is everyone takes this one test, right? Right, And if you score high enough on the test, you get into Stuyvesant. Right. And if you don't score high enough, you don't get into Stuyvesant. And, and just for people who don't know New York, in New York City, Stuyvesant is a public school right. and it is hands down, with, <laughs> with due respect to people who go to Bronx Science, it's right. hands down the best Public, public school, school in the city and one of the best in the country. Yeah, so getting into Stuyvesant is a big yeah, deal. It's like winning the lottery. And it's a public public high school. And so the entire way you get in is this test and how well you do on this test. So on its face, and you know, we have state action because it's a public school. On its face, this classification is not differentiating with respect to race. It's not like you get into Stuyvesant if you're this race or that race. It's just, did you get this score on the test or did you get that score? Right. right? So on its face, fine. That being said, year after year, it's turning out um, that very few people from certain racial minorities are scoring high enough on the test to get in, right? So it's a totally facially neutral classification, like a multiple choice test, but it seems to be having a disparate impact with respect to race and national origin, right? And so what we didn't talk about is how will a court think about something like that? The classification on its face isn't about race. But it seems to be having a disparate impact as to race. And this also sometimes comes up with sex, right? Suppose to work for the police department, I'm sort of making this up, yeah. but you have to be able to run a mile in, I don't know, whatever, eight minutes. Right. And suppose it can be shown that many more men are passing that test than right. women. Right. So the test on its face is classific- classifying on how fast can you run a mile, right. facially neutral, but it's having a disparate impact as to sex. What is a court to then? All right. Okay. We're going to have to do another podcast <laughs> about that. All right. Stay, stay tuned. To be, to be continued. Thank you very much. That's great. Thank you. So that's my discussion with Dean Emily Waldman. Stay tuned for next week's discussion on disparate impact. Thank you, as always, for listening. And thank you to www.bensound.com for the music. Once again, 
Tweet us, email us, reach out to us however you want, and let us know what you want to hear. And also, please rate us and give us that feedback. We love it. Thanks. Enjoy your day. 